Heads up, nature lovers and eco-tourists everywhere. When you hear there's more bad news about uranium mine contamination of the Grand Canyon, and you hear... What we do know is that the water in the end of December was at about three to four times the U.S. EPA standard for uranium in drinking water. When you hear something like that, you know that you are in the uncomfortable seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, an update on Grand Canyon mining issues with Allison Gitlin of the Grand Canyon chapter of the Sierra Club. This is additional information not covered in our report from two weeks ago. And we'll learn about the Veterans for Peace and this summer's tour with their historic anti-nuclear sailboat, Golden Rule, by talking with VFP board member Jerry Condon. And it's the sixth anniversary of Nuclear Hot Seat, right here, right now. So if there's time, we'll celebrate with some humorous clips, as well as a glimpse into our shared nuclear future. Plus, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, the nuclear reactor duck and cover report on what's gone wrong with those aging rust buckets in the past week, and more honest nuclear information that could be found in the forest at my campsite in Sequoia last week. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, June 13, 2017, and here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting off this week with Two similar contamination events in two different countries. Starting with the Hanford site in southeastern Washington state. Hanford again. Third time in a month. Around 300 Hanford employees took cover for around three hours after two air monitors went off, signaling radioactive contamination in the air. Open air demolition using heavy equipment, was being done at the plutonium finishing plant in central Hanford when the alarms sounded. The plutonium finishing plant is considered the most hazardous facility on the 465-square-mile Hanford reservation, and the environment was so lethally radioactive that workers could not enter rooms where work was taking place, and instead they carried out their duties remotely using what are known as glove boxes to turn liquid plutonium into buttons used to fuel nuclear warheads. According to reports by Susanna Frame for King 5 Television in Seattle, investigators said that workers were removing some of those huge, highly contaminated glove boxes from the side of the building on Wednesday, and fixatives were applied inside of them to stabilize the radioactive particles and prevent their spread 
But the effort failed. On Thursday morning, the alarm sounded, and high winds had swept the contamination off the boxes and onto the site. King-5 has confirmed that alpha radiation was detected. Plutonium is an alpha emitter, meaning radioactive plutonium had escaped in a fine dust form. The contamination was found on stairs leading to a trailer where workers put on protective gear, on sidewalks near a vehicle entrance gate, and in a parking lot where workers park their personal cars. At the time of the accident, winds were 10 to 15 miles per hour, with gusts expected throughout the day and into the evening of 30 to 40 miles per hour. Workers on site complained that the order to take cover was precautionary only, and they were not given real-time facts about the contamination findings. This is really laughable because no injuries were reported. Right. It takes three to five years after plutonium contamination for leukemia or thyroid cancer to show up and 10 to 15 years and beyond for the rest of your life for hard tumors to show up. So, no, no immediate injuries were reported, but that doesn't mean that health damage was not done. A veteran Hanford worker, according to the King 5 report, says that they knew an event like this would happen because CH2M Hill, the demolition contractor, was, quote, rushing the demolition and, quote, not listening to workers. Of course, a spokesmodel for the demolition contractor took exception to that, saying, if someone feels the work is moving too fast or isn't safe, we would expect them to stop it. And we all have the responsibility to do that. A grand case of blaming the victims for not stopping their victimization when all financial incentives are to continue what you're doing that created the victimization in the first place. After the take cover order was lifted, workers were allowed to leave buildings with instructions to avoid contaminated areas. That would mean, in essence, avoiding the Hanford Reservation. And just today, word of another accident at Hanford where workers were exposed to toxic vapors. A total of five employees were sent to medical facilities for evaluation of their possible exposure to toxic vapors. Respiratory protection was not mandatory for Hanford workers exposed to these vapors because they were technically outside of the farm area. And in Japan on June 6th, Five workers were exposed to radiation during an inspection at a nuclear energy research facility in Ibaraki Prefecture. In a massive attack of incompetence, the five were then quarantined for about three and a half hours in the same room where the accident happened. Although this action was taken to prevent the plutonium and other radioactive contaminants from spreading to other parts of the nuclear research facility, it probably worsened the internal exposure of these five workers as they breathed the tainted air. The accident happened on Tuesday when a worker in his 50s opened a sealed metal container that had a plastic container of plutonium and uranium powder samples inside that was double-bagged in plastic. Wow, what a high-tech solution. At some point, the bag ruptured, ejecting powder in the air. Not unexpected, because the plastic bag was placed in the container and sealed in 1991. Plastic just doesn't hold up that long. Lung checks 
showed that the man in his 50s had 22,000 becquerels worth of plutonium-239 in his system, an unheard of amount. Three of the other four had between 5,600 becquerels and 14,000 becquerels worth of plutonium that they had inhaled. The protective clothing and gloves worn by the five employees were contaminated. Although the workers all wore face masks that covered their mouths and noses, exposure of up to 24 becquerels, apparently from plutonium, was confirmed in the nasal cavities of three of them. What really gets me is this statement by the Japan Atomic Energy Agency, which says, so far, none of the workers has complained of health problems. How specious can you get? Again, three to five for leukemia or thyroid cancer, 10 to 15 to whenever for hard tumors. And you're talking about eh, within 48 hours of the accident, nobody was sick. You see how they use their playbook on how to twist perception of danger? So there's radioactive contamination, plutonium contamination of workers at the Hanford Reservation and in Japan. And the beat goes on. Speaking of which... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. The short-sightedness of post-Fukushima Japan continues to mystify and stun sane people. It has come to light that Japan is now burying radioactive rubble in the schoolyard of primary schools in Yokohama. That's radioactive debris that they schlep 266 kilometers or 165 miles from one site to another. Now the question is, why would they do this? According to comments on nuclear-news.net, which suggests that you hear this with the thickest possible sarcasm, the answer is, well, I guess it's better than sitting unprotected in barrels on the school grounds for years until the national government gets around to classifying the sludge as radioactive waste. And burying it on school grounds has a precedent in Fukushima that everyone seems to think is okay. So why would Yokohama treat it any differently? And, of course, no one has been harmed by this. Yet. Three to five years for thyroid cancer and leukemia. Ten years and up for any other kind of cancer that might result. Japan, you, this policy, all of it are this week's and long into the future's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Thanks to Beverly Findlay Kaneko and Jack Hero for their input to this numbnuts. Back to the U.S., where a nuclear reactor at Indian Point on Long Island was shut down on Monday, June 12, as crews worked to fix a leak. They reported a, quote, slight water leakage during the last few weeks. How can it be slight in a few weeks? At the Unit 3 power plant, Entergy officials say workers will replace two water seals that sit between the lid of the reactor and the reactor vessel. And remember, that water is what's used to cool the reactor vessel. What's ironic, except it's typical for nuclear, is that Unit 3 just returned to service last month after a $100 million maintenance and refueling project. 
Energy officials say Unit 3 will return to service when the maintenance is complete, though they don't know how long that will take. Or how much it will cost. Maybe another $100 million. As local resident Gemma Dunn is reported as having said on News 12, any kind of leakage of that kind of reactor makes you wonder cancer-wise. Other U.S. nuclear reactor news in the duck (laughs) and cover report. At Braidwood in Illinois on June 12, there was off-site notification for discharge of circulating water. Doesn't sound too bad until you read into the report and it says that water sample analysis results confirmed the presence of tritium and the release tank values for other radionuclides, meaning other than tritium, were interpolated based on tritium values for the release tank. I think that means that there was more than one radionuclide in there, but they just all lumped it together and called it tritium when they all have different profiles and different impacts. A hot shutdown at Susquehanna in Pennsylvania on June 8th. Hot standby at Watts Bar in Tennessee. And at Turkey Point in Florida, both standby steam generator feed pumps were out of service for greater than 24 hours. In Colorado, several community and activist groups on Wednesday, May 14, filed a federal lawsuit that seeks to block trail building and construction of a visitor center at the Rocky Flats National Wildlife Refuge. A misnomer, if ever there was one, because it's the former site of a major nuclear weapons manufacturing site. Concern over public access to the site revolves around highly radioactive plutonium that was buried there during the decade-long $7 billion quote-unquote cleanup of Rocky Flats that ended in 2005. Plaintiffs in the case include Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center, Candelas Glows, and Rocky Flats Right to Know, which allege that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has not complied with the National Environmental Policy Act in moving forward with plans to begin building a visitor center at the 62,000-acre property 16 miles northwest of Denver. Boulder attorney Randall Weiner said that the Fish and Wildlife Service is, quote, virtually thumbing its nose at its obligations to consider the risks its plans pose to the public and that it should do no construction or trail cutting at the site until it completes an up-to-date environmental analysis. According to an FBI special agent, John Lipsky, accidents, spills, fires, and waste disposal release plutonium and other radionuclides at the site. These materials were dispersed by wind and rain into the surrounding soil and water. In other words, not the place where you want to take your family to go for a nice, quiet hike in the wilderness. Speaking of dispersed radionuclides, this is a numbnuts story. In North St. Louis... The Environmental Protection Agency claims to have found no evidence of Manhattan Project radiation in Spanish Village, a subdivision built next to the Westlake Landfill, which contains over 70,000 tons of illegally buried, high-level World War II nuclear weapons waste. According to activists involved with the issue of the waste, there's just a little problem or two. First of all, Tetratech with whom the EPA partnered for this study, falsified a similar study in California not long ago. 
TetraTech is a business partner of Republic Services, the landfill owner responsible to pay for most of the cleanup should a cleanup be discovered to be necessary, which TetraTech has not done. By ignoring the findings of other engineering firms, findings which were positive for Manhattan Project radiation, and by testing fewer than 3% of the homes in Spanish Village, finding something would be very difficult. But maybe that's the point. If you know you can't win by playing fair, then what do you do? Maybe you just test a few places. Maybe you hire a company that has proven itself dishonest. Maybe you hire a company that could be induced the other way. And, as has been posited by some, maybe the results of the study were decided before the study ever started? More will be revealed. Over to Belgium now where more microcracks have been discovered in the Belgian Tehange II nuclear reactor near the German border. Seventy new microcracks have been discovered in the high-pressure boiler at the aging reactor since its last inspection in 2014. As of 2015, nuclear inspectors had found 3,149 points of damage to Tehange II, and now it's up 2.2% to 3,219. The reactor is only 60 kilometers or 37 miles from the German border. And while Belgium says its nuclear plants are safe, the German state of North Rhine-Westphalia has purchased iodine tablets in case of a nuclear disaster. And finally, congratulations shared with the Australian Conservation Foundation for the government's ending plans for an international high-level radioactive waste dump in South Australia. Australian Premier Jay Wetherill formally ruled out the controversial plan, declaring it dead and not something that will be progressed by the Labour Party in government. This scheme attracted sustained opposition that included protests, rallies, tens of thousands of petitions and protest letters, and widespread civil society and aboriginal opposition. We'll have this week's featured interviews in just a moment. But first, help us celebrate six years of Nuclear Hot Seat. You can do so with a donation that helps keep us moving forward into the future. Any amount is welcome. Consider a Starbucks donation of $5, an anniversary donation of $6, one for each of our years, or seven, one to grow on, or surprise us with something larger. We make it easy for you to donate. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. It's been your support through the past six years that have helped keep this show in the full upright position and moving forward, and know that whatever amount you can offer is deeply appreciated. And truly, you will have my gratitude. Two weeks ago, we re-ran an interview with Allison Gitlin of the Grand Canyon chapter of the Sierra Club that was originally recorded in September of 2016. That's where we examined the issues of uranium mining and contamination at this most magnificent treasure, to say nothing of an international tourist destination. After that program aired, Allison contacted me with new information about what's been happening at Grand Canyon, and she was eager to share this update with listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat. Allison Gitlin, great to have you back with us on Nuclear Hot Seat. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
two weeks ago on the show, we ran an interview on Grand Canyon uranium mining that you and I did back in September of 2016. What has changed with Canyon Mine and the Grand Canyon since we talked last September? Canyon Mine, which is the uranium mine just a few miles south of Grand Canyon National Park, has been in development over the past couple of years. They are planning on removing ore later this summer. And on March 12th, a group of activists, including myself with Sierra Club, uh, a group called Hall No, a group called Clean Up the Mines, Center for Biological Diversity, Veterans for Peace, we were all traveling around and we met with the uh, president of the Cameron chapter of the Navajo Nation and we looked at some abandoned mines on the Navajo Nation and then we went to Grand Canyon National Park and then we went to Canyon Mine and as this group of activists drives up, we see this water, huge volume of water spraying over the mine, just spraying up in the air, spraying through the fence into the forest. And we started asking some questions, and it turned out that Canyon Mine was filling up with water, taking on quite a bit of water. They encountered an aquifer about 1,000 feet down. And because of a wet winter, they were contaminated water across the Navajo Nation up to the uranium mill, which is in Blanding, Utah. There had been no notification to the Navajo Nation. There had been no notification to any of the other regional users of groundwater, such as the town of Tucson, Grand Canyon National Park, which, of course, has a number of springs that flow because of groundwater that is below that area. They didn't notify the Havasupai tribe, who are downstream and very worried about their beautiful waterfalls and the water that they drink. And if this group of activists didn't drive up, we still might not know about this. It was very frustrating, and we've since done a little bit more research. We found out that they should have known that they were going to encounter this water. When they drilled their supply well in the 1980s, they encountered an auger, or if it was old water that was groundwater and had been there for a while. At that time, USGS determined that this was old water. It had been there for a while, and so it would continue to be there for a while. And if Canyon Mine had been required to update their 30-year-old environmental impact statement, or if the state of Arizona had required them to get a aquifer protection permit that was a little bit more carefully tailored to the situation, the state of Arizona only required them to get a general aquifer protection permit that's two pages long. It's just like a general permit they give to a number of different businesses. If any any of the scrutiny of this mine had been to the level and the standard that it should have been, it would have been known that they were going to encounter water at 1,000 feet down. And so it's just infuriating because for years we've been telling the Forest Service that they need to update the environmental impact statement, and we've been telling ADEQ, the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality, that they need to do more than a general aquifer protection permit, and we were ignored, and now this mine is taking on water. Let's start with the water itself. What is the danger of the water coming in contact with the uranium mine? There are a few different dangers. So... You know, and, and this water, it's groundwater. So first of all, the U.S. Geological Survey wanted to set up a monitoring well, and they are drilling that monitoring well right now, but it's not complete. There have been no monitoring wells looking at groundwater up to this point. So it is now too late to determine whether this water might be contaminated from mining or if it might have a high uranium level because 
it was, you know, in contact with a body of uranium or for a long time. But what we do know is that the water in the end of December was at 29 times the US EPA drinking water limit for arsenic. Huh. And it was at about three to four times the US EPA standard for uranium in drinking water, which is very high. According to several people I've talked to, they said this is extremely high uranium quantity for groundwater in this area. And so they're taking this water. First of all, they're spraying it in the air. And we have film of it spraying through the fence and yet everybody is insisting that it does not spray through the fence. But we have film. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously we're, we, we're just hallucinating, but, you know, so are our, our phones that we're taking footage of this. But what we do know is that the water in the end of December was at 29 times the U.S. EPA drinking water limit for arsenic. Huh. And it was at about three to four times the U.S. EPA standard for uranium in drinking water, which is very high. According to several people I've talked to, they said this is extremely high uranium quantity for groundwater in this area. And so they're taking this water. First of all, they're spraying it in the air. And we have film of it spraying through the fence and yet everybody is insisting that it does not spray through the fence. But we have film. <laughs> um, so, you know, obviously we're, we, we're just hallucinating, but, you know, so are our, our phones that we're taking footage of this. And so that's the first risk is just, you know, spraying in the air. I think it's just completely unethical. The mine has not completed its permeability testing of the mine shaft. So part of the conditions of having this mine is that when the shaft was completely drilled, the mining company has to go in and figure out if there's a potential for water to leak out of the bottom of the shaft. And if there is, then they coat it with clay. That has not been done because the mine shaft was not complete at the time that this water started coming in. So nobody knows if there's a potential for water to leak further into the ground. The third thing is that they're taking the water now and they're exporting it to Utah. And it's been really hard for us to get numbers, but we know that between like March 1st and March 20th, there were probably like a million gallons of water exported off site. December 28th, they exported a half an acre foot. So we're in concern, uh, you know, in Grand Canyon National Park and in the Havasupai, not only of contamination dripping into their springs, but also of this dewatering, what kind of impact is this dewatering going to have on these springs? Some of these springs only flow a few gallons a minute. So if you're suddenly, you know, exporting a few million gallons of water from the ground and sending them off to Utah, then how is this going to impact these springs that are dependent on our precious groundwater? You know, we live in Arizona, so to be exporting it off-site and, and contaminating it potentially like this is is infuriating. I just I, I can't believe how irresponsible they were. When you say exporting, what are they doing? They're just trucking it out to someplace else and then dumping it, or are they treating it, or are they recycling it? What happens when they remove this water? You know, that's actually a really great question. So it's being exported on trucks. It's going through the Navajo Nation. The first time we saw it, those trucks were marked as petroleum trucks. 
the last time I saw the trucks, it seemed like they had taken those placards off, and now they just say non-potable water. So they're going through the Navajo Nation without the permission of the Navajo Nation or any awareness having been given to the Navajo Nation so that they could have emergency personnel on the ready to reply in case there was an accident and some sort of water release. They're going up to the uranium mill in Blanding, Utah, and once they pass through the gates of that mill, there is no requirement on behalf of the mill to have to tell us what they're doing with the water. We've had some people appeal to some regulators um, in the state of Utah, and it just it sounds like they don't have to tell us what they're doing with it. So we assume they're processing it. They did say that there was some information that they might be using it in their processing of uranium, but it's really vague. We're not really sure how that water is being used or disposed of once it enters that facility. Getting back to the Grand Canyon, given that this is happening so close to the Grand Canyon and it is impacting the waterways, what is the potential impact on tourists and backpackers and campers and hikers who are in that area for this beautiful natural wonder? That also is a great question. I've talked to a few people with the U.S. Geological Survey and the Park Service who study the groundwater that flows towards Grand Canyon. Where Canyon Mine is located, it seems to be very close to a divide where it may flow towards the Havasupai tribe's land, or it may flow towards the south rim of Grand Canyon National Park directly. And, of course, you know, the Havasupai do live at the bottom of Grand Canyon west of the mine. And so we don't know if it's going, you know, to the canyon via their lands or if it's going directly to the south rim. We also don't know how quickly it's moving, if it is moving at all. There have been some recent studies where they've actually, on the north side of Grand Canyon, the Park Service has been putting some dye into the ground, into sinkholes, and and tracing where these dyes are coming out. And in some cases, these dyes move many, many miles in just you know, a few days or a week. And in other cases, the dye isn't showing up at all. Well, the work hasn't been done on the south side of the canyon to really figure out where water is moving and how fast. And so we don't know if it could take like a thousand years for the water to move or if it's going to take a few days. There's a lot of monitoring going on now, but there hasn't been monitoring in the past. So the Park Service and the USGS can't really answer the question. You know, if you ask to have a Supai tribe, well, maybe it's going to take a thousand years before uranium contamination reaches you guys. Is that okay? Well, for people who've lived on the landscape there for thousands of years, that's not very long. (laughs) You know, there's so little information here that we don't know. If you were a hiker, you may encounter springs that have uranium contamination, maybe in a year, maybe in a few years, maybe not at all. But nobody can tell you that right now. I know that there are already places where there are signs up saying, do not take water from this particular site. And there are radiation signs up there. So I have pictures of that, and I've been told that that is already the case. And this is within backpacking circles. What I'd like to understand, if it's even understandable, is who's accountable for this? Where's the pressure point? Who dropped the ball, and how can we get them to pick it up in terms of official or political response to this? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
it's, yeah, I know I am. <laughs> Good luck. Yeah, so, um, you know, the the most classic examples are Horn Creek and Salt Creek, which are below the Orphan Mine, which was a copper mine that turned into a uranium mine that got grandfathered in and was within Grand Canyon National Park. And uh, after they closed, they were actually pointed to in the Canyon Mine Environmental Impact Statement in the 80s as an example of how uranium mining could be done safely. And then later on, the EPA went in and realized that Horn Creek and Salt Creek were highly contaminated and that the soil on the surface was highly contaminated as well around the mine. And so there's a big fence around it right now, and it's marked as like a restoration area. And, you know, millions of taxpayer dollars have been sent to remove the head frame and have it, you know, treated as hazardous waste and and to try to reclaim the site a little bit, which means, you know, removing some soil, but we don't know how to clean up groundwater. And so what happens in many of these cases, you know, these, these companies, they go bankrupt, they sell out to a different company who sells out to a different company who goes bankrupt. And it's really hard to trace years after the fact who is responsible for contamination. And so very often mine cleanups end up being taxpayer funded. And right now, there's actually a few sites on the Navajo Nation where water is being sucked out of the ground, separated from uranium, and re-injected into the ground in the effort to prevent contamination plumes from expanding. Because we don't know how to completely clean up groundwater. It's down there. We don't know what to do with it. As the American taxpayers, we are paying for this mess, and we continue to pay for it. And Canyon Mine is only required to put like I want to say it's a few tens of thousands of dollars that they're required to put forward towards reclamation, which is going to get a bulldozer there and some heavy equipment, and they're going to move some dirt around. It's going to be um, landscaping, essentially. Nobody is being required to put up money to fund future groundwater cleanup if it's required at the cost of tens of millions of dollars a year. This is stunning, and I'm sitting here stunned. I'm not often at a loss for words, as listeners to the show will know, but this one really does it. The jaw dropped on it. It's infuriating. It is absolutely infuriating. You know, and the Havasupai tribe right now is suing the Forest Service because they have been so afraid of just this thing happening. And, you know, unfortunately, we discovered all this too late for it to be introduced into that lawsuit. The oral arguments happened, I believe, in November or December of last year the very end of last year. And so, you know, this new information can't even be introduced to that lawsuit. And it's, it's just so angering to think that we've been saying this, you know, we've been bringing this forward. It happened in Pine Nut Mine, too, the, the uranium mine, one of the uranium mines that's north of the canyon. That mine also had no serious groundwater protection because it was supposedly a dry mine. It wouldn't encounter groundwater. And when they went to reopen it after I'd been on standby for a few decades, it was full of water. And they had to evaporate in their pond millions of gallons of water. So, you know, these mines are not dry. (laughs) Groundwater is, is down there. Given everything that's going on, what is the next step? that the activists are needing to take and what's being done to get this information into the hands and the minds of people who are coming to visit Grand Canyon? Well, there's actually a few things coming up soon that I would refer people to. One is there's a group called HALNO, H-A-U-L-N-O. Leona Martin works with that group. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
They are an indigenous-led awareness and action group, and they are going to have a tour along the haul route from Canyon Mine. And I encourage people to go to www.hallno.org and then click on the news button, and you can get information about the tour that they'll be doing until the 25th of June. And the culmination of that is going to be the Havasupai are holding a gathering to protect Red Butte from June 23rd to 25th. It'll be open to the public from June 23rd to 25th. People can come out there and there will be campsites available. It'll be near Red Butte, which is a Havasupai sacred site. And people can get more information about that. If they have questions, they can contact the Havasupai Tribal Council at 928-448-2731. So it's 928-448-2731. And I'll uh, provide this to you for your website. Allison, clearly you and the others are doing important work and are on the front lines of trying to turn around what's been a runaway nuclear situation for a long time and i commend you for it we're in this together and thanks so much for what you're doing keep us informed here at nuclear hot seat anything comes up we'll always have time for you on the show i will thank you so much for the time and for getting the word out on this it is hugely important and i'm really glad that people are paying attention that was allison gitlin of the grand canyon chapter of the sierra club her link will be up on the website NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 312. Now for our second interview. In terms of getting their point across to the world, the nuclear industry has a thick playbook and spends millions of dollars a year on public relations, on languaging, on spinning the information, on covering up the dirt that they leave behind, the work that they do. Sometimes all we have is our story and a boat. But these two together can be powerfully effective. To learn the anti-nuclear history of the sailboat Golden Rule and its current mission to raise awareness about the true costs of war, as well as the need to abolish both nuclear weapons and nuclear reactors, I spoke with Jerry Condon, a national board member of Veterans for Peace and president of the Golden Rule Committee. Jerry Condon, thanks so much for being with us today on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much for having me. Start out with telling us a little bit about Veterans for Peace, what the organization is, how it got founded, and what it aims to do. Veterans for Peace is a 32-year-old organization. Primarily, about 90% of us are actually Vietnam veterans, uh, but we also have, believe it or not, we have a few World War II veterans uh, among us still, Korea War veterans. In the last several years, also have become an international organization. We have a very big chapter in London, England. We have chapters in Ireland and recently in Japan, South Korea, Okinawa, Australia. So we are growing to become an international organization. Our mission is uh, nothing less than to abolish war. Um, and uh, under that framework, we work to restrain our governments from intervening overtly or covertly in the internal affairs of other nations. So we're certainly opposed to the current U.S. wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan, for example. And I've been involved with Veterans for Peace for quite a few years, and I'm 
on the board of directors now. You have been putting together something called the Golden Rule Project. Explain the significance of the Golden Rule, the ship. The Golden Rule is a 34-foot wooden sailboat, a catch that was built actually in Costa Rica in 1956. It's a historic boat. It has an amazing story. In 1958, four Quaker peace activists attempted to sail it from Los Angeles, actually San Pedro, near L.A., to the Marshall Islands to interfere with U.S. atmospheric nuclear bomb testing. They were actually uh, stopped by the Coast Guard in, in Honolulu and arrested Another American family with a boat called the Phoenix of Hiroshima completed the mission and actually succeeded in sailing into the nuclear test zone in the uh, Marshall Islands. Between the two boats, they've got a lot of international publicity and actually raised the consciousness of the world about the dangers of radiation in the atmosphere. And that led to a lot of public pressure and eventually to President Kennedy in 1963 signing the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty, along with the uh, United Kingdom and the USSR. And that treaty uh, banned all testing in the air, in the water, and in space, but allowed it to continue underground. The Golden Rule was then sold in Honolulu to another uh, owner and did quite a bit of traveling uh, around the world, actually, in the Pacific and in the Caribbean, and somehow or other uh, ended up here on the north coast of California in Humboldt Bay. Its owner had neglected it. It was floating around the, the bay. Somebody rescued it and tied it up, but not well enough, and, and a, it sunk in a big gale. And it was pulled up onto the beach, Leroy Zerlang's boatyard here in Humboldt Bay in 2010, and it was a real wreck. And uh, he was about to make a big bonfire out of it, when he learned that it had this very special place in the history of the Cold War and then started doing research and realized this is an important historic boat. And Veterans for Peace a chapter up here in Humboldt Bay Area found out about it and decided uh, to undertake the huge effort of restoring the boat. They asked Leroy Zerlang if they could spend one year in his boatyard rebuilding and restoring this historic boat. And Five years later, it was, it, was, it was rebuilt and ready to sail. For the last three years, well, this will be our third year in a row, which we're once again sailing for a, a nuclear-free world. Tell us about the activities of the crew of the Golden Rule when it docks in its different ports and takes its anti-war stamp. Well, we have like a kind of an ongoing speaking tour, but we bring a sailboat and a crew along with us, and the logistics of that, as you can imagine, are pretty uh, complicated and intense. But it's a beautiful boat. People just love it. It's got uh, bright red sails with a, a peace sign on one of the sails and uh, the logo for Veterans for Peace on the other, and it's quite a, a beautiful boat, and it has a big impact on people. And when people learn of the history, people fall in love with this boat. We, what we do is we, for the last two years, we've been organizing, well, for example, last summer, we were all throughout the Northwest in 30-some different ports where we had educational events about the dangers of both nuclear power and nuclear uh, weapons and war. 
and hooked up with a lot of local issues. Uh, people were dealing with the coal terminals and Bangor nuclear submarine base up near Seattle, bringing attention to these imminent nuclear dangers and making connections with the sustainable energy causes and whatnot. And so it's been a really dynamic and well-received effort this summer. We're going to be sailing all throughout California. We're actually leaving uh, Humboldt Bay on Saturday, June 10th, and heading south with stops in Fort Bragg, Bodega Bay, San Francisco Bay, where we're going to be doing a peace action and sailing camp. And we're going to be going all the way up the Sacramento River and eventually back out all the way down the coast to uh, Los Angeles and San Diego. It's going to be about a three-month journey with stops at about 15 uh, different cities, and we're really excited about it. There's a lot of people waiting for us. What has the reception been like in cities where you dock, especially when you give the nuclear information? People are very, very open. We try to not just be preaching to the choir. You know, we're really trying to reach out broadly. So we're reaching out to veterans, to rotary clubs, to boat people, you know, a lot of boat people that, who are, you know, more or less apolitical, but love wooden boats. They really get the significance of this boat. So what we found is that, you know, there's very, very few people who are enthusiastic about the prospect of nuclear war. So uh, it's not <laughs> it's not it's not really a, a, a divisive, polarizing issue like so many of our issues are. It's easy to reach people to talk about the dangers of nuclear power as well as uh, nuclear weapons. And I think we're building support for actually a, this year we're sailing specifically with the mission to support the United Nations Treaty to ban nuclear weapons, which is currently being negotiated and is expected to pass overwhelmingly in early July, despite the fact that it's being opposed by the U.S. government and the other nuclear powers. It's going to pass overwhelmingly by the General Assembly there. It'll make uh, nuclear weapons illegal, just as other chemical and biological weapons treaties already make those weapons illegal. One can only hope that it has this kind of impact. What, if any, pushback have you received on these tours, either from the military or from the nuclear industry? You know, we really haven't experienced much pushback, at least not that we're we're aware of. Uh, so, as I said, uh, we've been surprised uh, even how little uh, resistance there's been to our message to sailing for a, a nuclear-free world. People love the story of the boat. We don't just go out and start preaching with our signs saying, ban nuclear weapons. We tell the story. And the story is an amazing, powerful story and uh, educates people and really draws people in. And we find, like I say, very broad support. Now, I'm sure there's some, I'm sure not everybody is pleased, but so far we've had very little overt resistance from the public, from the military, or from, and we've even had support from some people in the military. Hopefully that'll continue. Hopefully uh, we can build, I think it's certainly time, because uh, once again, we have a situation in the world where uh, nuclear proliferation is growing, where the threats of nuclear war is growing, where the U.S. confrontational policies in the Middle East and in Syria with North Korea and other places, heightening tensions with nuclear-armed Russia, really is flirting, 
if not inviting, the possibility of nuclear war, which we're so fortunate to have avoided up until this time. But this is very urgent, and many people are concerned about Donald Trump having his finger on the nuclear button. In fact, there's been new legislation introduced in Congress by Congressman Ted Lieu from Southern California and Senator Markey in Massachusetts. They have introduced a bill which would um, require a congressional declaration of war before a president could initiate a first strike nuclear attack. Because right now, the U.S. policy is open to the possibility of a first strike nuclear attack. Donald Trump could decide to initiate a nuclear war. And so this bill would make that impossible. So Veterans for Peace is supporting that Marky Lou bill, which is called the Restricting First Use of Nuclear Weapons Act. And we're also supporting the U.N. Treaty to Ban Nuclear Weapons, because ultimately that's really what needs to happen. For those of us here in Southern California who are going to be part of your route of docking, what can we do to support you? And is there any way that we can get you to speak at a particular event or a particular yeah. venue? We're always very, very happy to speak at every venue we can get to. And we will be in Southern California before long. In fact, we're going to be in Southern California beginning in early August. People can reach us at our website, VFP, that's Veterans for Peace, vfpgoldenruleproject.org, or on Facebook at VFP Golden Rule Project. You can also reach our project manager, Helen Jackard, at her phone number, 206-992-6364. We do need a lot of help. In fact, it's people at the community level that organize our tour, organize these events, working closely with us, of course. So we don't have any big foundations or major donors behind us. We raise our money as we go it's we by passing the hat, essentially, at our events. We're hoping to attract some uh, bigger funding down the road, but right now we depend on people at the grassroots level to keep us going. Jerry, we wish you safe journey every step of the way, and thanks so much for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. Let's work together and ban nuclear weapons. From your mouth to somebody's ears. Jerry Condon of Veterans for Peace. If you are on the West Coast and can help arrange speaking venues this summer, contact Veterans for Peace. We will have all their contact information up on the website, NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 312. This is a big heads up for San Onofre activists, especially the surfers who share their love of the ocean. And be aware that future tours of the Golden Rule will be taking place on waterways around the entire continental United States. So if you can help them out, get in touch with them as well. Activist shout out. Congratulations to the Uranium Film Festival, which just announced its new prime sponsor, EWS, a German company that supplies green power and eco-gas and works in various ways towards bringing about the energy revolution. Now, wouldn't it be great if the solar industry here in the U.S. and everywhere else would similarly underwrite the activities of the anti-nuclear movement? As the song says... Money makes the world go round, and while we in this movement squeeze every penny so that by the time it shows up it looks like several dollars, we still need those pennies to begin with, 
in order to move our work forward. So if you've got any solar connections, talk with them about helping us out and show them that in Germany, at least, they're down with the program. Here's today's final thought. Recently, I met an accomplished film director at an entertainment industry event. When I told her that I produce a weekly program on nuclear issues, she said, Is there enough material to fill a show every week? You could hear my eye roll from across the room as I thought of the pile of stories sitting on my desk that I couldn't fit into that week's nuclear hot seat because there wasn't enough time. And it's the same every week. And it has been from the start. Six years. I never would have thought it possible. But, as they say in 12-step, one day at a time, one step at a time, one show at a time. And now there are 312 of them. Along the way, I have been privileged to speak with some of the most extraordinary people, from Dr. Helen Caldicott to the brave moms of North St. Louis, First Nation activists in Saskatchewan and Native American activists from around the United States, dedicated activists in Japan, India, England, Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Brazil, the Netherlands, South Africa, Switzerland. And it humbles me to understand that there is an international hunger for the information carried on this show. I have just learned that in May of 2017, Nuclear Hot Seat was downloaded in 122 countries. That's 10 more than last year at this time. And this is just from feedback from one of my online syndicators. To my one listener each last month from Sudan, Moldova, Slovenia, Azerbaijan, Brunei, and 25 other countries, thank you. From your individual seed of interest, may our mighty movement continue to grow. Of course, I don't do all this alone. I've been assisted by a great team of volunteers. All the big-hearted environmental warriors I've been privileged to interview and whose expertise I rely on regularly behind the scenes so I can get the story right. My syndicators, Jules Stan at UCY.TV, Patrick Wilson of Activate Media, broadcast radio station WGRN in Columbus, Ohio, and all of you who repost the show on websites and networks around the world. My thanks to European correspondent Sean McGee and Fukushima correspondent Carrie Ann O'Connor. Then there's the Facebook posting crew. You didn't think the show got all over Facebook by accident, did you? They're headed up by the marvelous Tara Johnson-Douglas, and the team includes Susan Laurel, Robert Cherwick, Jessica Hoagland, Vicki Hobbs-Nelson, and my old college boyfriend Wesley Strubing, who I roped into doing this. Many thanks to my tech guru Richard Viasana, who regularly saves my technical bacon, vegetarian bacon that is, and especially my thanks to the donors and recurring monthly donors who help make Nuclear Hot Seat possible. As I say every week, and I truly mean it, Without your support, none of this would be happening. So on behalf of myself and this movement, thank you very much. When I was sitting in Sequoia six years ago and got the hit to do my first podcast this Tuesday, I had no clue 
what I was getting into, or where it would lead. I certainly could not have imagined all this. I have had a front row seat watching our movement rejuvenate, grow, and develop as activists continue to link, share strategies, support each other, communicate what we know, and attract others to our cause. We are everywhere around the world, making our voices heard all the way up to the United Nations. On good days, I see that we are making a difference. And on the inevitable bad days, I fear that all I'm doing here is narrating the rearrangement of the deck chairs on the Titanic. But hey, you gotta do something, or nothing's going to change. It is my hope that, in the coming weeks, months, and perhaps even years, Nuclear Hot Seat will help provide the information, ammunition you need, we all need, to get our points across and help change the future, moving it away from nuclear. One day at a time, one step at a time, one nuclear reactor at a time. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, June 13, 2017. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from the Uranium Film Festival, dailymail.co.uk, Newsweek, Harvey Wasserman and PRN.fm, Susanna Frame and King 5 News in Seattle, tri-cityherald.com and the reporting of Annette Carey, Department of Energy, asahi.com, japantimes.com, nuclear-news.net, Westchester News 12, DW.com, deunrenard.wordpress.com, the esteemed Hervé Courtois, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission event reports, thanks to Erica Gray, and a shout-out to you, the listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, and all those who support this work. I still have some of those comic bits left, and I will use them on future programs. As for what's coming up next on Nuclear Hot Seat, why don't you let me know what you would like to hear me cover? I do rely on listeners to point me towards stories I otherwise would not know about, so don't be shy. Let me know. And if you have a skill you would like to contribute to the show, anything from researching to audio production to marketing to producing features and some more ambitious projects I'd like to discuss with somebody who could really take them on, reach out and let's talk. Start by sending an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, and recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. We are copyright 2017, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. That's my name, the name of the show, and a link. A reminder that if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, delivered with as much humor as is humanly possible, take a moment to send a supporting donation to NuclearHotSeat.com. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that anti-nuclear activism may be the height of a David versus Goliath battle. Just a reminder, David won. See? You've all had your nuclear wake-up call. Now do not go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking?
Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.